You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8. Hello there and thank you for downloading The Agenda's podcast from the 15th of November. And on the programme today, as the UN releases its global stock take, yet another depressing report about the climate crisis, we asked whether the upcoming talks in Dubai can be the turning point the world needs. We caught up with Hani Tomi, who's a sustainability expert and managing director of Roland Berger, and also climate activist Anita Nori. And there is good news for commuters as Dubai's multi-million dirham road project is apparently 50% complete. But are more roads the answer to congestion? Not all of the experts agree. And certainly Michael Manville, an associate professor of urban planning at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs, thinks something else might work instead. Plus, we continued our focus on the roads, but we moved away from congestion to pollution because it's emerging that it's not just exhaust fumes that we need to worry about when it comes to cars. In fact, the effects of wear and tear on wheels could be just as worrying. We spoke to the author of that report. Plus, thunderstorms are forecast for the rest of this week. We found out when you need to look out for wet roads with the National Centre for Meteorology. And Head of Sports, Chris McCarty, joined us with an update on all the latest news. Welcome back to the agenda. Right, we've got another day and we've got another ominous climate change report. And... You know, I don't say that to be lighthearted, but but to be honest, I think it is a bit of a challenge for all of us to, I suppose, keep the climate crisis front of mind with so much else going on in the world, shall I say, uh, as we come out of the news bulletin. But this latest study from the UN is particularly depressing because, of course, it comes ahead of those COP28 climate change talks when all the countries in the world are sort of gearing themselves up. Um, So you'd sort of think that we'd have some positive news, but this report suggests that efforts being made to tackle the problem remain insufficient. Researchers describe the moves as only baby steps and say that the upcoming talks in Dubai must be a clear turning point. Joining me now to get analysis of that report is Hani Tomi, who is Managing Director of Roland Berger Middle East. He joins me on Teams. Hani, how are you? Thanks for joining us this morning on the agenda. Good to see you. Hi, Georgia. Thank you so much for hosting me again. It's a, it's a real pleasure to be talking to you today. Well, we're coming up to a very busy time for you, I think it's fair to say. So we're, we're equally very pleased to grab 10 minutes from you. Can we get a little bit of analysis on this report? You know, just how bad is it? How off the mark are the world's countries when it comes to the concessions that they're making when it comes to emissions? All right. Well, there is no easy way to say it, except that it's actually very bad. Um, We, you know, in order to meet the 1.5 degrees, the famous 1.5 degrees of the Paris uh, Agreement, we need to reach uh, uh, emission levels of around 32 gigaton by 2030. Now, if we look into, actually look into all the real commitments happening, which we call them, you know, the NDCs on a country level, we see that the world in the current state, with all the initiatives assuming that they actually will take place, we will reach around 55 gigaton of emissions. That leaves a gap of 23 gigaton, which is massive. And at that rate, uh, we should forget the 1.5 degrees, and we start talking about 2.8 degrees, 
which is quite detrimental and something unpleasant to live with. Can I ask you, is this the global stock take conclusion report that we've kind of been anticipating for the last year or so? It, or is that research still to come? Is, is this the mega report? No, that's the actual. This yeah, is the yeah, mega that's report. That's the actual stock take. Yeah. And that's the official number that the world can now take as a given. Wow. Okay. So I thought so. Because you know, when you get, you get press releases from the UN, sometimes, you know, they put, need to put more stars on them, the really sort of key ones. And we did definitely get a sense that this was a major report. I mean, has the UN recommended what more needs to be done to keep temperatures from rising by more than 4.5 degrees? Or is this report just a stock take? No, it's actually, you know, it highlights the problems clearly, but it also highlights the solutions and the tools to actually go there, right? Um, the, the natural question that comes in is, is it still feasible? Is it still possible to go to the 1.5 degrees? The answer is yes, uh, we can still be hopeful about it. But, the, the, you know, you, 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 you mentioned in your introduction, the baby steps can no longer be happening, right? We need to really have giant steps going forward. And, uh, you know, to reach 43% reduction of emissions by 2030 or 60%, um, by 2035, you cannot just talk about it. You need to commit. You need to have. You, sh- you need to show substance to the commitments that you're doing, and that is the challenge. And that's what COP28 should be about. Do you think countries are going to be coming to the table, ready to make the type of commitments that are necessary? I think the the, the choices are becoming limited. You don't. You cannot be anymore a bystander and say, you know, it's someone else's problem. Let them take care of it. Um, the the world is realizing that the pressure is mounting up. The pressure is mounting up because of the citizens, businesses, uh, and actually because of the crisis that they're living in. You know, look how many floods, uh, dry weather's, um, the the the. Uh, the, the Everything happening is actually a result of the of the climate action, and countries are realizing no one is exceptional in this one. They 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 all have to participate, so they have to come and sit and actually do something about it. The big the big challenge, however, is the resources per country differ, right? So you have countries that actually have money, countries that need the money, countries that have know how, countries that don't. So that balance need to be created, pointing fingers can no longer help anyone and blaming others or saying, you know, let them do it can no longer work. So they have no choice but to sit and be serious about what actions to be taken. I mean, there was already quite a lot of pressure on this COP28 conference. I know that the um, that the UAE has been preparing for it for, for nearly two years now, which is quite unusual for COP conferences. Apparently, you normally only have a year. Do you think that the Dubai talks will be the clear turning point that we need? You know, do you think the groundwork has been laid that we are now ready for countries to actually sit up and do something? Yeah, Um, it's natural. And I think going forward, it will actually take two years, if not more, to prepare for those cops. Because, you know, as President Al-Jaber said, substance is what makes it a reality. You cannot just solve the whole solution in COP. You have to pre-solve the solution and announce it in COP if you want to. So we're not expected to go in and just figure out the solution while while we are there. If you look at the kind of solutions that, that will be put on the table, you need to talk about 
the energy transition, right? You need to triple the renewable energy or you need to say double the rate of energy efficiency improvement, uh, get away from coal, address the oil problem. Um, when we talk about climate financing, you need to see who's going to finance, uh, who's going to be receiving the finance, what are the preconditions for that financing? And, and the list goes on, right? So you cannot just figure it out when you are there. And that's why a lot of the um, pre-discussions, pre-alignment, pre-signatures have been taking place. And that's why when we say expectations are high from COP28, it is basically a forecast from all the meetings that have been, taking, uh, been taken in the background. So, yes, we do have a lot of um, expectations because fluffy talk and promises and no action is no longer on the table. It will not be allowed and it will be criticised right there and there. We have actually seen Sultan al-Jaba. Uh, I mean, I've been trying to get an interview with Sultan al-Jaba for a year now, and certainly he is pretty much never in the country. He is constantly going for talks around the world. So the hope is that those talks have been fruitful and will have paid off uh, in two weeks' time when everyone does indeed come to the table at Expo City in Dubai. Hani, Tomi, thank you very much indeed for your time on the programme today. Uh, I'm No doubt we will be speaking to you quite a bit over the next month or so, 15 days to go until COP. And then, of course, the conference itself lasts for about two weeks. Hani Tomi there, Managing Director of Roland Berger Middle East. Thank you very much indeed for your time. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley on Dubai Eye 103.8. Welcome back to the show and we are discussing the UN's latest study on climate change on the programme today. It's the big one. It is the global stock take and sadly... Although not unexpectedly, it makes for particularly depressing reading with those COP28 climate talks only weeks away. Researchers say that efforts being made to tackle the problem remain insufficient. Uh, They describe the moves as baby steps and they say that the upcoming talks in Dubai must be a clear turning point. Joining me now to give us her reaction is entrepreneur, activist and sustainability expert Anita Nori, who is the founder of Green Energy Solutions and Sustainability. Anita, thank you so much for joining us in the studio. It is all a bit depressing though, isn't it? Yeah. Hi, Georgia. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's uh, my pleasure and nice to be sitting in the studio with you. Um, So uh, it, it is depressing, but It's not surprising, and that's the thing. So instead of uh, crying and saying, oh, what have we done? Why don't we say, okay, this is what it is. This is what's happened. And let's find a way to make it better. Let's find a way to make it easier. And I think that uh, the stock take is really critically important because what it does is it makes and holds governments responsible. And we find out exactly what the diagnosis is, what we've done, what we've done right and what we've done wrong. So we have done some good things as well. So I don't like to uh, ever in my life focus on the negative because, you know, then you can sit there all day and cry in your soup. But it's it's useless to do that. And why is it, do you think, that governments around the world just aren't doing enough? Because I think it's fair with a big global stock take to, to point the finger, frankly. Well... Okay, well, it's not only the government, it's the people, it's uh, it's us, it's you and me. What are we doing? I mean, 
I, I hate to admit it, but I'm sitting here with a little water bottle in my beside me. Why? Why am I doing that? When I keep on talking about we don't need single-use plastic, does that mean we're going to ever get rid of plastic? I don't think we ever will, and we shouldn't because plastic has its place. But we need to be more thoughtful, and we need to support the governments. So what the government can do for us that they're they're uh, lacking or lagging behind in is supporting renewable energies by maybe financing them or green finance that will finance the smaller projects, not the huge mega $100 million projects. That was something I always faced. When I wanted to do something on a landfill and make it more environmental, I would go and talk and try to raise funds. And they would say, well, you know, your project is too small. Well, those days are gone. Let's basket them together. Let's support the small guy that's trying to make the change, putting the green bins out there. Let's support him. Let's celebrate him and uh, help him to make that change. There does seem to be an awful lot of news around at the moment of every single company that seems to cross our path announcing the measures that they are taking to become more sustainable. Does that, does that feel like a positive move to you? Well, it's okay. <laughs> it's sort of marketing. What's happened is since uh, the announcement of COP28 in this region, all of a sudden there are 5 million experts in sustainability and everybody has putting that badge on them. Does that mean that they're actually experts? No, but we are all in ourselves. We know what we should do. Uh, if it's not uh, affecting our pocket, why would we ever change what we're doing? Life is easier to not do anything. So it need, we need to feel it. It needs to have some economics behind it, either as a benefit or as a penalty. But if that doesn't happen, it won't spur the change that we need. You see a lot of protesters. People are out there protesting. Um, what are they protesting? I mean, even being out there protesting is a waste of time and energy because you're just speaking uh, to the masses. We already know what is done. So let's actually do some actionable things and let's take this stock take and take this COP28 as a chance to make a difference. I think the fact that we have the uh, a leader for COP28, Dr. Al-Jabr, who is a petroleum guy, to lead this uh, more sustainable and more environmental approach, I think that's to be applauded. I think it's not an easy thing for him to do because his company's whole economics relies on fossil fuels. And here he is standing up having a voice, making a change. And there you go into something else I always say. Have a voice, make it heard, keep talking, it'll happen. I, I really believe that. I have to say, I, I'm very thrilled that you've ended on a positive note there because there's an awful lot of greenwashing going on. Uh, so it's brilliant to have you join us and, and, and explain how things can be done and uh, end on a, a sort of a note of positivity, at least. Anita Nouri there, entrepreneur, activist and sustainability expert and the founder of Green Energy Solutions and Sustainability. Thank you for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure. Thank you.
Welcome back to your agenda program. And I have good news for commuters because Dubai's multi-million dirhams road project, lots of words there, uh, is 50% complete. The Roads and Transport Authority is spending over 370 million dirhams to link Sheikh Zayed Road, which runs, obviously, the length of the city, with the Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Road, which serves the southern suburbs. Now, Mata Altaya, who is the RTA's Director General, says it will slash the peak hour journey times from 20 minutes to just 12. Now, that move or that building operation, because it is a serious operation, comes as Dubai's population booms and those congested roads, as we all know, have become a complete norm. Uh, And actually, what's really interesting is yesterday we heard on the business breakfast that the Dubai toll operator Salek has reported a yearly increase of more than 5% in its third quarter profit. That is as revenue generating trips grew about 15%. Now that's 15% in the third quarter. But if you look at the last nine months, trips have increased by 12% yearly. Now, I'm not an economist. I don't work on the business breakfast, but I do know that the business breakfast presenters get very excited indeed about proxy data. And I think that number of trips increasing by 12% for Salic means that the roads are 12% busier. Is that a fair? I think that's fair, isn't it? I'll send a a message to Richard Dean to double check. But I think that's the general gist. Um, you know, it means that we've got 12% more cars on the roads, right? So that would explain why they seem so busy. So how can a city like Dubai deal with this really rapid growth? Because that is a lot in only nine months. Are new roads the best way to deal with this massive influx of more cars and more people? Well, turns out that not all the experts agree. A little earlier, I spoke to Michael Manville. He's from the Luskin School of Public Affairs at the University of California in Los Angeles. He specialises in research into transportation systems. And he told me that actually more capacity on the roads is not the answer. There can be very good reasons to build roads But normally when we talk about reducing congestion, and that that can mean different things, but normally when we talk about it, what we're referring to is making someone's trip faster than it would be otherwise. So, you know, it normally takes me 25 minutes to cover this stretch of freeway because it's congested. If I add a lane to that freeway, will that go down to 20 minutes or 17 minutes And the answer to that is usually no. What usually happens when we add road capacity in a congested region is that in the very short term, you do see some increases in speed, but that speed in turn attracts other travelers. One better way to think about it is this. One of the biggest deterrents to driving at a busy time is congestion itself. And so if you add capacity and reduce congestion and make the typical peak hour trip a little bit faster... Uh, in pretty short order, what you're going to find is that new cars are attracted to that higher speed. And then by being attracted to that higher speed, they actually eat away at it. And so within six months to a year or something like that, what you see is that the road is moving more vehicles, but all those vehicles are going just as slow as they had been before you added the extra lane. So that creates a real conundrum for city planners, because They want to make their cities more mobile, more attractive. So how do you make the roads less congested if building more capacity isn't the answer? 
I mean, it's it's not the world's most popular answer, but the consensus answer among people like me who study this issue is that you have to use dynamic tolls. You have to use something that uh, is sometimes called congestion charging. And the idea behind this is that the road is a piece of extremely valuable infrastructure or a piece of extremely valuable land. And when you give it away for free, the same thing happens that happens almost any time you have a good that's in high demand and has no price attached to it, uh, which is that you run out of it, right? That the root cause of congestion is that people really value the space on our freeways, particularly at those busy times when folks want to get to work or get their children to school. And that value is not reflected in the price of the road. And if you've ever taken an economics course, uh, you probably learned, or at least were told, that when you have a situation where price is divorced from value, you're going to get a shortage. And that's basically what traffic congestion is. And so the main way to deal with it is to use these dynamic tolls that sort of manage the demand for the road, that charge people a price that's sort of reflective of the value they actually place on it. But that is so contentious that it's actually only been done in in very few cities. Am I am I right, right in that? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So this this is an idea that has kicked around in economics textbooks and on economics blackboards for literally you know centuries in one form or another, but has only recently been used in practice, and it still only occurs in a handful of places. The longest running program is in Singapore which has had some form of uh, sophisticated electronic road pricing since 1998 or so. Uh, and then there are more, more recent and, and slightly less sophisticated versions in Milan and London uh, and Stockholm. And then there are individual sort of stretches of road in different parts of the world that use these dynamic tolls as well. It is quite contentious. It is very unusual. And because it's unusual, people often react very negatively to it. The only point I would make is that it is not so different from the way we deal with almost any other form of sort of network infrastructure. A, a place like Dubai has meters for its water and its electricity and its fuel. And part of the reason it does that uh, is to make sure it doesn't have blackouts or water shortages and things like that. So the basic idea of pricing an essential good to make sure you don't run out of it is not unusual. It is quite unusual with the roads, but it's not a coincidence that the roads are the only piece of major infrastructure that big, sophisticated, rich cities routinely have shortages of. I've heard about other ways of charging car users. For example, I think in Singapore, they also, you have to pay a huge amount of money just to have a permit to own a car. That's right. Is that another way to encourage people to use other forms of transport? Because of course, they are going to have to get from place to place. You just might want to get them off the roads. This really boils down to what your goal is, right? And then I think it's really important to emphasize because sometimes policymakers don't consider this as much as they should. Having more people use transit is not the same goal as having your freeways not be congested. And so certainly if you charge a very high price just to own a car, you might get more transit ridership. And there's lots of reasons to think that uh, higher levels of transit ridership can be advantageous. But even a relatively small amount of cars can congest a freeway, right? So the goal of congestion pricing is to reduce congestion on the roads it's used. It may, as a byproduct, also get you more transit ridership and less pollution and things like that. But that's very different from saying that your first and foremost goal is you want the road to be sort of flowing at a, at a more efficient level. So right now in Dubai, we are seeing 
heavy traffic nearly all the time. But we're seeing particularly heavy traffic during the school run and, and the daily commute. What would be your advice to the people in charge of Dubai to manage that congestion? Well, I mean, I, you know, I've never been to Dubai. Uh, what, what I know about its transportation system is, is just what you told me. So let me caveat what I'm about to say that I'm speaking from a certain amount of ignorance of the specifics. But I generally think that any city that is suffering from heavy congestion and particularly heavy congestion on a freeway network or a busy arterial network, it should consider using congestion charges to manage that congestion. The congestion charges are going to at least make a dent if they're done correctly in travel. Uh, and so they're going to make the road work better and that's going to be a better service. You're going to have to pay for the service, but you're going to get a good functioning service for your drivers. But also in addition to that, you will as a byproduct, get some more transit ridership, probably get some more walking, get some more carpooling. And rather than spending tremendous amounts of money on building out more lanes or building out more transit infrastructure, you're actually going to raise revenue. So I, I just think that almost any government should first try to manage demand and raise revenue while improving the, the performance of their services, then trying to build out more supply spending revenue while leaving demand sort of unmanaged. Michael Manville there, Associate Professor in Urban Planning at the UCLA Luskin School of Public Affairs. This is The Agenda. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the show. We are continuing our focus on the roads this morning. Uh, we're asking you whether or not you'd be willing to pay more money, whether you'd be willing to pay a congestion charge, for example, to reduce the amount of cars on the roads, to reduce traffic jams. Thank you, Sally, for your comment. Uh, you said by adding tariffs, bad drivers will still be on the road. Improving driving uh, and their road and driving sense will directly impact on congestion. You know, Sally, I think I agree. Um, producer Jennifer Crichton looks at the maps every day now to sort of figure out where the worst congestion is for her traffic reports. And the number of crashes have really increased over the last few months. And I think it's due to driver frustration, maybe, because of the jams. Anyway, definitely something to discuss. But we are now going to look at uh, pollution because it's emerging that it's not just exhaust fumes that we need to worry about when it comes to cars. In fact, the effects of wear and tear on wheels could be just as worrying. According to new research, almost 2,000 times more particle pollution is produced by tyre wear than is pumped out of the exhausts of modern cars. Let's find out more. Joining me now uh, to talk through the results of his research is Professor Robert Shorten, who is head of the Dyson School of Design Engineering at Imperial College London. Uh, Professor Shorten, thank you for your time. Tell me, what is actually happening to our tires as we drive around to create this particle pollution. Hello, good morning. Um, from London. Can you hear me? You can. I can hear you. Yes, I bet it's rainy and cold. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a very, it is, yes, it is. It's, it's a very, um, it's a very simple process. I mean, it's, it's basically the wear and tear on the tires is, um, is giving rise to, uh, to, to these particles, uh, some of which become airborne and some of which uh, fall onto the ground. And you know both both manifestations of this pollution are are problematic. Um, you know if they become airborne, the danger is that they we inhale them and they go into our bloodstreams and they they have detrimental effects on, on our on our health. 
And if they end up on the ground, the slightly bigger particles, then typically what happens is they get washed into the waterway, uh, they enter the food system, and they and 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 then we 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 digest them as we as we as we eat our food. Um, uh, and both both forms of pollution are you know very problematic, not just for for humans, but also for the environment uh, in, in in general. And of course, this problem is is getting worse. Uh, the reason why this problem is getting worse is. Um, you, you know, as we move towards vehicle electrification, electric vehicles are very good because they reduce uh, tailpipe emissions, uh, especially if the energy is, is generated uh, in a green manner. However, uh, the battery size, there's, there's an, an insatiable a- appetite for, for range in electric vehicles. That's leading to increased battery size. Um, as battery size increases, the vehicle weight increases. Um, and you know, electric vehicles are already substantially more, uh, are, are substantially he- heavier than uh, than and than conventional vehicles, and and that increased weight and also the increased torque of electric vehicles um, gives rise to faster wear on our tires. Uh, so this problem is actually paradoxically becoming worse as we uh, move towards a greener form of transportation. Do you think that this um, uh, wear and tear on the tyres could be worse in hot countries? Um, because it's actually more pronounced here. That I think the heat adds to it. So it could be more of a problem, for example, in hot countries like here in the Middle East than, um, than in cold countries. To be honest, it's, it's, it's a problem everywhere. And, um, you know, it's, um, it's a difficult problem to solve because there are no real good uh, alternatives to tyres. To so while we can... We can try and uh, invent better tires, or we can try and uh, find strategies to mitigate the wear on tires. It, it, it's a it's a very difficult problem actually to solve because there's it, it's one of those problems that it's very very difficult to engineer a way out of this out of this problem. Have you got any? suggestions <laughs> i mean it's not fair you found the problem and that's brilliant that you found the problem because we weren't aware of it before it seems a bit much to ask you to find the solution as well i suppose well there 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 are, there are things we can do i mean what we, you could ask yourself what affects um what affects uh tire wear so the way we drive our cars is 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 a is a is a, is a big factor you know how we accelerate how we how we decelerate the the road surface the the types of tires, you know, these are all things we can invest in. Also, we can manage the number of cars in our vehicles. These are all things that will make the problem better and, and try and bring these uh, levels of pollution down to a, to a safer level. I w- could I just add that it's not just tires that's a problem. I mean, these non, non-tailpipe em- emissions are, are, are growing. Um, so things like the wear on our, on our roads themselves, uh, brake dust, uh, tire, uh, road markings, the way they wear, as well as tire emissions, are, are all constitute non-tailpipe emissions. Really interesting stuff. Uh, another thing uh, for us to worry about, I suppose. I drive an electric car and it is a lot heavier than other cars. It makes me feel safer on the roads. But of course, it, as you say, it means that my tyres are wearing down faster. Really interesting stuff. Professor Robert Shorten, thank you for your time here on the agenda. Uh, Professor Shorten is head of the Dyson School of Design Engineering at Imperial College London. This is The Agenda with Georgia Tolley. On Dubai Eye 103.8, the UAE's number one talk radio station. Welcome back to the show. It is The Agenda here on Dubai Eye 103.8. Georgia Tolley keeping you company all the way through until one o'clock. And looking out of the window now, it's a little bit blustery. There's a bit of dust in the air. 
not a sandstorm, but a bit of dust. But are you ready for rain? If not, you'd better prepare yourself because we're expecting rain and stormy conditions. Uh, They are forecast throughout Thursday and Friday. So where will the unsettled weather hit exactly? And should we prepare for flooding. Well, to find out a little earlier, producer Jennifer Crichton sat down with meteorologist Isa al Saredi, who is a senior weather forecaster with the National Centre for Meteorology. And he explained we should be expecting cloud cover to begin moving in from this afternoon. On Wednesday, clouds appeared eastward with a chance of some convective clouds formation. And uh, cloud amount increases gradually by night over the sea and island with probability of rainfall. And the weather on Thursday and Friday, where we expect the peak of the unsettled weather, where the amount of clouds increases are combined by convective clouds over scattered areas, especially northern, eastern, and coastal areas, associated with rainfall of different intensities, with lightning and thunder at times, and clouds gradually decreases by Friday night. And what's causing these unsettled conditions? Is this as a result of any particular pattern that we're seeing? Actually, because we have low pressure in the upper air and uh, some surface low pressure also system driving clouds with the jet stream from the west to the east. So for the current situation, I can see in the satellite, there is a band of clouds uh, over Saudi Arabia. And with the jet stream, it will be approaching the country today and for the next three days. Are there any particular areas that we're expecting to be worst affected? Where should we be watching out for, for example, storms? We are expecting the most affected areas to be the far north and eastern areas. Let's say probably from Sharjah to Ras al-Khaimah and going down from Ras al-Khaimah to Fujairah and especially over mountain areas. Would you be expecting to see any flooding in those areas? And would you expect the the rainy and stormy conditions to move down to Dubai and Abu Dhabi later? Well, the most expected areas to be flooded, or like let's say where we can see accumulated rain or flash floods, it will be over eastern areas and some northern areas like uh, Ras al-Khaimah maybe. Because through our experience with uh, similar conditions, we noticed that over those areas, we usually get accumulated rain, especially if we have uh, heavy rain, like with different intensities. So how long would you expect these unsettled conditions to last? And is there anything people in the Northern Emirates can be doing to prepare themselves? Well, we expect the unsettled weather condition to start from tomorrow. Let's say today we will have some convective clouds, but it will be over eastern areas, which is normal conditions that we get through the year. But the peak of this situation will be from tomorrow until Friday night. Isa al there, senior weather forecaster with the National Centre of Meteorology, reassuring us uh, that the roads are unlikely to be flooded uh, for any decent amount of time at least. and that can only mean one thing. It is time for our sporting headlines. Uh, Sports editor Chris McCarty has all the latest news for us, starting with uh, that all-important cricket action. 
Only one place to start this morning, that's with the cricket. The opening semi-final of this World Cup takes place 12.30 today at Mumbai, the host city, Wankiri Stadium, the host venue, hosts India, taking on New Zealand. India, they've been perfect in this World Cup thus far. Nine wins from their nine pool matches for the Black Caps of New Zealand. Well, they're looking to go one better than they did four years ago, of course, on that occasion, beaten by England over in England and the bookmakers will have you believe and I tend to agree that India will beat New Zealand in India in this semi a little later on today. A little bit of controversy in the build-up to this one. It has been reported by a number of publications that India have actually uh, chosen a different pitch to play on. Uh, much to the chagrin of the ICC, it was pitch number seven at the Wankiri Stadium that had been earmarked for today's semi-final. A pitch that hadn't been used in this World Cup. Some reports suggesting that the BCCI have actually elected to use pitch six due to an unforeseen issue with pitch seven. Pitch six, incidentally, has been used twice before in this World Cup, including an India match against Sri Lanka. Make of that what you will 12.30 though all eyes India New Zealand I do fancy the hosts to reach a first World Cup final since 2011 as for other sporting intrigue well Novak Djokovic he was beaten over in Turin last night his first defeat since that Wimbledon final back in July he was taken to three sets Yannick Sinner the young Italian eventually emerging victorious after three hours and nine minutes the other big story from the ATP finals is that Stefano Tsitsipas has had to withdraw from the competition due to injury the big pole Herbert Hercash is his last minute replacement so that brings you bang up to date with all of the live sport just worth marking your card for tomorrow of course the DP World Tour Championship gets underway at the Jamaica Golf Estate day one we're going to be bringing you blow by blow action across the week and into the weekend from the DP World Tour Championship keep it locked right here on Dubai I 103.8 and we're all looking forward to the golf. Chris McCarty, thank you very much indeed. Sports editor, editor for Dubai Eye, sports editor for ARN and also a host of your Drive Time show. Make sure you tune in from 5pm for Offscript with Sonal and Robbie as well. Uh, and they will keep you entertained all the way through until 8pm. The agenda is live Monday to Friday from 10am till 1pm.